Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Diotes Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. The history of the theft of the Parthenon marbles makes me angry. Apologists for the ransacking and destruction of the Parthenon make me angry. The arrogance, bigotry, and greed of the powerful empire robbing a subjugated, occupied country makes me angry. And the continued arrogance and bigotry and selfishness of representatives of the British Parliament and the British Museum is evident in the refusal to return these stolen goods. They claim they hold on to them for the good of the Greek people and because only they understand the proper care of these magnificent ancient statues. Now they've got even more creative excuses. But in 2023, their arguments are shiitake, much as they were over 200 years ago. And history will look even less kindly on them in future than they did when the British government first accepted stolen goods, if they don't give them back. Today we're going to follow the Parthenon marbles, damaged and orphaned to their new place of residence in England, and how a government claiming it was based on justice abetted one of the biggest heists of all time. First off, I need to make a correction to something I said in the last podcast. I quoted Lord Elgin writing to his right-hand man in Athens, Reverend Philip Hunt, quote, I embark for Athens to plunder temples and commit sacrilege. The quote initially surprised me because Elgin was always putting on the white savior mask, even if he did confide to friends his desire to decorate his home with his plunder. He never called it plunder, though, and he was too sour to have a sense of humor about it. Plunder was a serious business. I triple-checked my sources and through Theodore Veretos and his book, A Shadow of Magnitude, traced the quote to a letter that was written to Hunt but by a young British soldier named Captain Thomas Lacey of the Royal Engineers. He was a veteran of the British war against the French in Egypt and was anxious to get reassigned. The opportunity he found was an offer by Lord Elgin to supervise the Acropolis project. He wasn't happy about it though, and he didn't last long in the position. According to Vretos, he battled nonstop with the site supervisor, Italian painter Giovanni Lucieri and finally severed himself from the scene. I would have loved to have had the time to totally immerse myself in the letters, diaries, and dispatches that surrounded the events of the Acropolis in the first few years of the 19th century. There was a lot to get through in too short an amount of time. If we'd included every piece of damning evidence, this would be a 10-hour episode. We've got some good sources posted on our website if you want to see more. For now, let's get back to the fate of the marbles. When we last saw the Parthenon marbles, they were being ripped off of the walls of the Parthenon. Many statues were sawed in half to make them easier to transport. So the front half of a statue would be packed up and sent to the port at Piraeus for transport by ship to England, while the back end was left in the temple. Many reliefs, statues, and decorative parts of the ancient temple of Athena crashed to the ground and shattered as Lord Elgin's mob of workers took down as many marbles as they could, as fast as they could, before someone stopped them. Christopher Hitchens, in his book, The Parthenon Marbles, The Case for Unification, says, if a British national edifice or sculpture like Nelson's Column 
which by the way was modeled on the classical Greek columns, quote, had been mutilated in this way while the country was under foreign occupation, we would never hear the end of it. Yet as we'll see, plenty of Brit politicians and nobles defended Elgin's vandalism of the Parthenon. As we said last week, several shiploads of marbles were traveling to England as Elgin sat in a French prison. The French had been pushed out of Egypt, but the war with Britain continued. The Elgin children had returned to Britain while the very pregnant Lady Elgin met and flirted with any number of French officials in an attempt to get her husband released from custody, to no avail. Meanwhile, as the marbles began arriving in England and hanging around the London docks, Elgin's mother, the Dowager Lady Elgin, got permission from various wealthy friends to store crates on their properties. Elgin had taken so much from Greece that the estates of these friends were being buried in crates, and they soon demanded the marbles be removed. Old Lady Elgin rented an estate on Park Lane to store the marbles, and eventually a large shed was built to handle the overflow. And still the crates kept coming. Even while Elgin was in prison, his minions continued to haul marbles down. In fact, Vretto says the second round was made up of 48 cases, nearly all shipped by British warships with no charge to Elgin. And going back to how all of this was possible, I read an article in Al Jazeera this week where they interviewed Eleni Korka, researcher, archaeologist, and general director of the Department of Antiquities and Cultural Heritage at the Hellenic Ministry of Culture. She pointed to documentation of Elgin's bribes to different Turkish officials in order to take possession of the marbles. For example, he paid 100 pounds to the district governor in Constantinople in order to have that second shipment of marbles released. He paid the distar, the fortress commander in Athens, meaning the officer in charge of the Acropolis, 35 times his annual salary to allow him to do what he did. The reason Gorka knows this and now so do we, is that, quote, Elgin documented all expenditures because he was financed by his in-laws, the Nesbits. Remember, Elgin never had much money. He'd been plowing through his wife's money ever since they'd gotten to Constantinople. Then he started imposing on the in-laws. There was a lot more drama going on. At some point, Elgin's captors, the French, told him he would be released if he gave the entire Parthenon collection to Napoleon. He refused and sent letters to Lucieri to hide whatever marbles hadn't yet been shipped in case any French were lurking around the ports. At one point, there was a falling out between the Brits and the Ottomans. The French stopped and seized a few of Elgin's ships full of loot. Fortunately for Elgin, loyalties changed again and his boatloads of marbles were rescued by Lord Nelson, who had finally been won over to helping Elgin. My favorite story of his incarceration is when the French offered British King George III a trade. Lord Elgin for General Pierre-Francois Boyer. The king refused the offer, and Elgin sat in prison for a few more years, during which time Lady Elgin had given birth and then fallen in love with another Scottish fellow, ultimately leading to a huge scandal and a nasty divorce. Google it. Makes the Brangelina split look like child's play. But before Elgin wound up in prison and broke his marriage, an important individual who would be forever linked to the marbles and the fate of Greece came into play. Lord Byron, yeah, that Lord Byron, was friends with the British consul in Athens who was the first Brit to protest Elgin's actions. While Elgin was still in Constantinople and Lucieri was beginning to dismantle the Parthenon, Lord Byron was in Athens and visited the consul's house. 
where Lucieri was staying. I can't figure out why they were friendly enough for this when the consul was protesting what Lucieri was doing. But anyway, when Byron came by, he began a rant against Elgin. He'd seen the state of the Parthenon. It was reported he asked Lucietti, what right had he to remove the precious stones of a weak nation? What right had he to raise his hand against a building that stood whole for 2,000 years? He promised if Elgin continued, he would shame him before the world. Byron returned to England, and Elgin, as we know, didn't stop ripping apart the Parthenon. Meanwhile, back in Britain, the continuing arrival of the marbles from the Parthenon was big news. Elgin was sitting in a French prison, and the young lord kept his promise. Byron was a nobleman and still relatively unknown as a poet when he wrote his soon-to-be-famous poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. In the second canto, he trashes Elgin as a heartless monster ravaging Greece. His mind as barren and his heart as hard is he whose head conceived, whose hand prepared ought to displace Athena's poor remains. Her sons too weak the sacred shrine to guard, yet felt some portion of their mother's pains, and never knew till then the weight of Desbo's chains. We have a link to the poem in our episode notes. It became all the rage in Britain and beyond, and it wasn't long before Lord Elgin got wind of it, and his feelings were hurt. Lord Elgin's secretary, William Hamilton, told his boss they should welcome the attention. I shall be much surprised if this attack does not turn out one of the most friendly acts. It will create an interest in the public, excite curiosity, and the real advantage to this country and the merit of your exertions will be known. Wrong. Vretto says Elgin was eternally stigmatized by the poem, and another one later, and was the only person Byron ever attacked by name in the entirety of his collected works. The poem made Byron a household name, and anyone who could read read that poem. And it encouraged a lot of other folks to start speaking out against Elgin and his actions. Edward Dodwell, an Irish painter and traveler, referred to Elgin's insensate barbarism and devastating outrage, which will never cease to be deplored. Facts but apparently Dodwell was not above swiping a few artifacts himself. But true to the colonial imperial mindset, Reverend E.I. Burrow, in a historical account of the marbles, said people in general are pleased to see the collection Lord Elgin brought to England. And see it they did, for a price. When Elgin was finally released in 1806, he opened up Park Lane for visitors, charging a fee for the honor. He portrayed himself now as the selfless savior of the marbles, who sacrificed so the people of Great Britain might elevate themselves and the art of the nation. Artists with enough money, the gentry, and foreign visitors lined up to view the marbles. Burroughs did allow, quote, although it may be accompanied by his universal feeling of regret that their sadly mutilated state deprives us of the more elevated pleasure, which arises from the contemplation of a work entire and undefaced. Mm-hmm. Even Elgin's old pal, Edward Clark, no stranger to stealing monuments himself, jumped on the bandwagon, criticizing Elgin for want of taste and utter barbarism. Removed from the original setting, the Parthenon marbles have lost all of their excellence. Prince Regent and soon-to-be King George IV also joined in. 
Lord Byron, who never let an opportunity pass for insulting Elgin, published an article in a journal called The Athenian, where he artfully trashed him and his actions, signing off saying, It remained for one paltry Scotch nobleman and his despicable painter to render Athens contemptible as themselves. Lucieri spotted the article and sent it along to Elgin, and asked to be released from his contract, which Elgin refused to do. Lucieri had yet to be paid a penny for his work. Byron followed up with another poem that would become one of his most famous, The Curse of Minerva. In it, Minerva curses Elgin by name. I love that. But if Byron was such a Hellenophile, and he was, why did he use the Roman names of the gods instead of the Greek? Puzzling. Mortal, twas thus she spake, that blush of shame proclaims thee Britain once a noble name. First of they mighty, foremost of the free, now honored less of all by me. Foremost of the free? Byron's interest apparently didn't lie in India or the Middle East or Africa. Slavery in Britain had yet to be abolished. Free. But he did go on to curse Britain and Elgin and all of his seed for what he had done to the Parthenon. Points for that. Maybe he found out Elgin and his wife's names were carved halfway up one of the Parthenon's columns, the active one devoted to classical art. Apparently, her name can still be seen there. One of my favorite lines from the poem, Frown not on England, England knows him not. Athena, no, thy plunderer was a Scot. Funnier still is how Englanders were pillaging all over the globe as this poem was written. And as we will see, England became a completely willing accomplice to Elgin's crimes. Elgin's hopes were that by exhibiting the bulk of the marbles for a price, he could make some of the money back he'd lost denuding the Parthenon. Even the director of the Louvre visited Park Lane and paid his entrance fee. He praised Elgin's noble idea to rescue the marbles from the daily ravages of a barbarous nature. Of course, Napoleon had planned to grab them for France and place them in the Louvre, which already had its own loot from Greece on display, so it would have been hard to criticize. The French were no better than the Brits in their imperialistic nonsense. According to Hitchens, the marble fever he'd set off in Great Britain made Elgin consider turning Park Lane into a permanent museum. But even with international dignitaries making the trip to Park Lane, the money wasn't coming in fast enough to suit Elgin or those he owed money to. And he owed money to a lot of people. This is not even including his staff, like Hunt and Clark, who were never paid a dime of their salaries and all of the time they served the British Embassy. Elgin decided it would be too costly to maintain a museum. And there was already a museum in Britain experienced in caring for ill-gotten holdings. Elgin proposed that Parliament purchase the Parthenon marbles to house in the British Museum. The back and forth of this, while Elgin aired his dirty laundry during divorce proceeding against his wife, culminated in a select committee investigation by Parliament in 1816 to decide the matter once and for all. Elgin presented his case by saying he was motivated by love of art and the classical works of Greece. Susan Nagel repeats the fiction in her book, Mistress of the Elgin Marbles, that Elgin's sole purpose in retrieving the marbles was to protect these treasures and make them available for students and artists to study and improve themselves and their understanding of great art. Elgin swore before the committee that when he set out, 
he meant only to have the beautiful marbles sketched and copied. Journalist Bruce Clark says Elgin insisted the idea of physically exporting Athenian artifacts only came to him when he saw the local conditions and understood how vulnerable those artifacts were. Clark then reminds us Elgin had already had many of the marbles pulled down before he ever made an appearance at the Acropolis. Elgin told the Honorable Committee that he had witnessed temples being destroyed by the Turks in order to reuse the stones. Clark says, Elgin even claimed to have met Turks who had admitted grinding down precious pieces of Athenian marble to make mortar. Vretos quotes Elgin in his presentation to Parliament that his only wish was to improve British arts and, quote, rescuing the Parthenon marbles was spurred by the great destruction perpetuated daily on the Acropolis Hill by the Turks, unscrupulous travelers, and the ravages of time and weather. To which I say, Hurry, citizens of the world, let's rip out Stonehenge and send it to the Met in New York City, where unscrupulous travelers and ravages of time and weather won't touch it. Nagel, a one-time professor in humanities, in her apologist biography of Lady Elgin, says, He was rescuing history. His intent was to make these great works of art available to artists and educators, and in a sense, he became a messenger of time. Right. Bruce Clark, journalist and researcher, author of Athens City of Wisdom, says Elgin's claims that his interest in the Parthenon were that sketches and molds of the marbles would be beneficial to the progress of the arts in Britain, and that his fear for their survival was his only motivation in stealing the marbles, were untrue. Quote, in more private moments, he didn't conceal his determination to decorate his home in Scotland with artifacts extracted from Greece. In an article in Sismonian magazine, Clark emphasizes again, upon his arrival, the Earl had declared an interest in decorating his home with ancient treasures. Thomas Harrison, Elgin's architect back in Scotland, who had first encouraged the ambassador to redecorate his family estate with classical Greek artifacts, wrote him a letter as soon as Elgin got permission to send his men into the Acropolis. In it, he mentions the port, the port or a sublime port referred to the government of the Ottoman Empire. Harrison wrote, The opportunity of the present good understanding between us and the port should not be lost, as it appears very uncertain for the fluctuating state of Europe how long this part of Greece may remain under its present master. It was plain to most of Europe that the Ottoman Empire's days as the oppressors of Greece were numbered. It's obvious Elgin and his gang wanted to run with the loot before the political situation changed and the Greeks were able to stop them. Does that sound like someone rescuing history or stealing it away? Elgin handed his receipts to the committee. Payment for artists, bribes, transport, storage, etc. It totaled 74,000 pounds, equal to more than one million in dollars today. Elgin wanted to be paid that much and wanted part of the transaction to include a peerage, which would mean the monarch giving him another title besides 7th Earl of Elgin and the 11th Earl of Kinkardin, something to impress the folks back home and pass down to his heirs that Lord Byron so eloquently cursed. The British Museum was interested but didn't like the price. He never did get the peerage. The select committee was made up of 18 members of parliament only two of whom had any real knowledge of Greek art. They first met on June 16, 1816, and began with the Chancellor of the Exchequer's announcement of Elgin's request for payment of the marbles. 
The Chancellor to the Exchequer is the government's chief financial officer, according to GovUK, who is responsible for raising revenue through taxation and for controlling public spending, as in the government purchasing the Parthenon marbles. According to Hitchens, even before Parliament voted on the matter, Lord Elgin had agreed with the Exchequer to use the Parthenon marbles as security on a bad debt. So they were already in the hands of the British government before it was officially decided if Elgin even had any right to sell them. Hitchens has printed a transcript of the proceedings of the Select Committee in an appendix of his book, The Parthenon Marbles, A Case for Unification. It's sure to raise your blood pressure. It did mine. Many in attendance were hot to claim the Parthenon Marbles for Britain. British sculptures were admittedly a sad state in England, and the country's artists could learn a thing or two. Another argument was that if Elgin hadn't grabbed them, some foreigner would have, and wouldn't it be better for the English to have an impressive treasure trove? If I stole my neighbor's car, because it's nice, and somebody else was sure to steal it anyway, would that get me out of trouble with the Bloomfield, New Jersey cops? I don't think so. One of the members of the committee, A.C. Long, said, it would be to be regretted if the public lost this opportunity of obtaining a collection more useful than any other that could be found for the improvement of the arts. Quite a few agreed to the boon of possessing someone else's impressive cultural heritage, but there were some who had pangs of conscience, I'm relieved to say. In particular, Mr. Hugh Hammersley made the first recorded proposal to return the marbles back to Greece. He stated for the record, it was to be regretted that the government had not restrained from this act of spoliation, but as it has been committed, we should exert ourselves to wipe off the stain and not place in our museum a monument of our disgrace, but at once return the bribe which our ambassador had received to his own dishonor and that of our country. He was referring to the Ottomans giving Elgin access to the Acropolis and the marbles. And the Honorable Mr. Hammersley pursued that point. It was in evidence of the noble Earl himself that at the time when he demanded permission to remove these statues, the Turkish government was in a situation to grant anything which his country might ask on account of the efforts which were made against the French in Egypt. Hitchens backs up the facts well known to the British government back in 1816. Quote, with a nod from the Sultan's representative in Athens, who at the time would have been scared to deny a Briton anything, Hunt set about removing the sculptures that still adorned the upper reaches of the Parthenon. Elgin argued that the Turks hated the sculptures and were happy to allow them to leave Greece. He said Muslims hated the statues because they represented the human form and the form of heathen gods to boot. The Turks were shooting at the sculptures, he claimed, smashing them into gravel for mortar. They had to be rescued. Hammersley dismissed all of this, referring to witness statements and evidence that before the Brits defeated the French, the Ottomans were making money on the Acropolis by charging hefty admission to the site. In addition, the Ottomans had occupied Greece for 400 years. Although they'd been poor caretakers of the monuments, they still stood. And there were obviously still plenty of marbles left for Elgin to pillage. Hammersley proposed the Parthenon marbles should be held in trust until the return was demanded by their rightful owners, the Greek people. The proposal was defeated. Other members of the committee questioned Elgin's actions and the morality of his acquisition. Sir John Newport had not been able to satisfy his mind that these marbles had been acquired in that way that could authorize the nation to purchase them.
another member of Parliament, Mr. Babington, thought the mode in which the collection had been acquired partook of the nature of spoliation. Spoliation in common parlance of the day was taking property by illegal or unethical means, which about says it all. Babington wanted to know if the collection had been procured by such means as were honorable to this country. I'll answer that. No. Mr. Banks rushed to Van Lord Elgin and his completely above-board procedures. Not only were the local authorities of Athens favorable, meaning the Ottoman governor of Athens, but the natives, both Turks and Greeks, assisted as laborers. The natives were not only instrumental in carrying the firman into execution, but even pleased with it as a means of bringing money among them. Natives? That's a lot of assumptions to be making, Mr. Banks. And I suspect if I hired a bunch of homeless Londoners to dig up plants out of Kew Gardens to bring home to New Jersey, my argument that they were willing, and that should be proof enough I had a right, would not go over too well in the British courts. But the British for centuries believed that the rules of common decency did not apply to them if they didn't respect the natives. Mr. John Ward chimed in that no one had greater respect for the feelings of nations than Elgin. He wished to consult the feelings of that country, meaning Greece. But he had to save them quickly, the marbles. He had to save them. Hitchens comments, while few thought that the Greeks had any standing in the matter, there were those who felt that Elgin had exceeded his authority as an ambassador. From reading the transcript of the debate, I would say they felt he exceeded his authority by potentially costing His Majesty's government money. Because for the most part, the committee, quote, praised Lord Elgin's conduct and right to the collection as his private property. Elgin bully boy and chief minion Reverend Hunt was called to testify. He was asked by the committee if there was any opposition shown by any class of the natives. The Reverend Hunt replied, None. A lie. We talked last week about the protest the Greek population made when various artifacts throughout the country were looted, including the marbles, and the ramifications they suffered. Though the majority of the Greek people living under the Ottoman occupation were unable to make formal complaints to the authorities or to Elgin because they would risk the wrath of the overlords, there were a few letters on record doing just that. I found one cited by Vretos, written by Ioannis Penizelos, who is the master of a school in Athens run by and for wealthy Venetians. He sent a letter to Reverend Philip Hunt, he who just testified, outraged by the looting of the Parthenon, protesting the last deplorable strippings of the Temple of Athena and of the other relics of antiquity. Hunt told Elgin about the letter. Elgin told Hunt what he thought about Greeks, which is getting both tiresome and insulting. Even Nagel, when writing of the Elgin children returning to England accompanied by their Greek nannies, says the Greek savages were presented to King George III. More proof that Hunt lied about the feelings of the Greeks toward the marbles and other classical remnants of their culture. In 1802, Lustieri wrote to Elgin about his crew's attempts to seize the Pandrosion, a monument dedicated to the daughter of the first king of Attica. He wrote, the Turks and Greeks are extremely attached to it, and there were murmurs when Mr. Hunt asked for it. Hitchens' comment is that Greek opinion was something that most British governments felt safely able to disregard. 
British writer and one-time member of Parliament C.M. Woodhouse wrote an acclaimed book about the Greek Revolution, The Philhellenes. In it, he writes about the marbles. Quote, the point is that it never occurred to anybody before Lord Byron that removal of the Elgin marbles might be seen as an act depriving the Greeks of their historic heritage. Nobody thought it in the least odd that the Greeks were allowed no say whatsoever in the matter. Something very interesting comes up in this mostly one-sided debate, and that was the exact nature of the Furman that gave Lord Elgin permission in his mind to ransack the Acropolis. The original Furman has never been found. The only evidence, and I put that into quotes, evidence of the Furman, is an Italian translation of said Furman. Elgin and his men did not speak Italian, with the exception of the artist and supervisor of the dismantling of the Parthenon Lucietti. In the archives is a letter written by Lucietti to Lord Elgin in 1802, the year Elgin first visited the site. It says, I advise you, my lord, to procure a firman for the distar, the fortress commander in charge of the Acropolis, in which everything that he has done for your excellency is approved. It is a paper you promised him before you left Athens. Wait, what? Didn't Elgin claim to have a firman in 1801? that he had Hunt put in Lucietti's hands so he could start taking apart the Parthenon? Now, remember back to the discussion of Lord Elgin's expenditures, where he paid that fortress commander, the Distar, 35 times his annual salary. Could that have been for allowing the looting to go on while Elgin kept promising the Distar that he had a firm in coming that would give the okay for all of it? Hunt was verbally given the orders sent by Elgin without the paperwork to back it up. Back to the Italian translation of this supposed Furman. The English translation of that document entered into the archives states that Reverend Hunt is the marble courier. The contract dates to 1816, which is the year that the select committee met, the year the marbles were purchased by Parliament. It states Elgin and his agents had permission to measure, draw, and make molds of the sculptures, and that, quote, Elgin's activities will not harm the sculptures. Mr. Diffrey Williams, a former keeper of Greek and Roman antiquities at the British Museum in the 1990s, has called the document, quote, the official legitimization after the event by the responsible authority. What responsible authority? According to Art News, Scholars of the Ottoman Empire have said the language of the Italian document does not match the wording of a typical Turkish contract from that period. And it's dated 1816, 15 years after the fact, just as Elgin is begging Parliament to buy the marbles. Doesn't sound fishy at all. At any rate, it didn't bother most of the members of the select committee any more than it did the rest of Parliament, who voted to buy the Parthenon marbles 82 in favor 30 against. They paid half the amount he requested, 35,000 pounds, and every penny went to pay his debts. Researchers have never found the original Turkish language version of this document, the Furman, despite, Art News says, the Ottoman Empire's meticulous record keeping at that time. The Parthenon marbles were removed to the British Museum in 1816. The British Museum has insisted on the term Elgin marbles for over 200 years. Its administrators claim they are forced to do so by the terms of the agreement of the sale by Lord Elgin. But then the museum is also adamant that Elgin didn't steal the marbles. 
In addition to attaching his offensive name to the Parthenon marbles, Elgin and his heirs were made trustees of the museum in perpetuity. Today, one of his heirs is a trustee of the museum. In 1816, after the sale of the marbles, Lucieri was still sending vases and fragments from the Acropolis site. Hitchens says these were used to embellish Elgin's home at Broomhall. Susan Nagel called the Elgin's romantics. I got a bridge I'd like to sell her. I will concede that Lord Elgin, he who stole the marbles, joined the British Philhellenic Committee to support the Greek Revolution in 1821. But I'm suspicious since he didn't seem to consider Greeks human or worth his time when he was actually a despoiler in their country, I rather suspect he was trying to recycle his permanently damaged image. The Greek War of Independence broke out in 1821, less than five years after Elgin sold the marbles to the British government. Battles were waged all over Greece, including Athens. One of the great stories of the war shows the lies of Elgin Hunt and the privileged men serving in Britain's parliament when they claimed the Greeks didn't care about the Parthenon. Athens had been taken back by the Greeks in April of 1821, but the Ottomans pushed back. During the siege of the Acropolis, the ragged Greek army fought the Turks, who held the highest point in Athens, the citadel, the Acropolis, where the Parthenon stood. Parts of the walls of the Parthenon still stood after Elgin's vandalism and the Venetian bombardment of the 17th century. Smithsonian Magazine explains the ancient Greek builders had secured the marble blocks of the Parthenon walls together with iron clamps in carefully carved grooves. They then poured molten lead over the joints to cushion them from seismic shocks and protect the clamps from corrosion. Classics professor Robert Browning in Hitchens' book says during the battle, the Turkish garrison of the Acropolis began to break up the surviving walls to get at the lead shielding of the clamps and melt it down for bullets. The Greek besiegers sent a message offering to give them bullets if they would leave the Parthenon undamaged. I grew up on this story. Hitchens says it seems evident then that there was a consciousness of the Greek heritage at all levels from the humble upward. Those who claim or imply otherwise are simply ignoring the historical and literary record. Even during the war, tourists, who always seemed to be hanging around war zones back in the day, were prevented from further looting by members of the provisional government and soldiers on the ground. General Macrianis, a hero and leader of the revolution who was illiterate until old age, rescued and protected two ancient statues he came across during the war. When independence was won and the country was devastated and hungry, a few of his soldiers talked of selling the statues to Europeans. Macrianis shamed them, saying, it was for them we fought, for Greek civilization, culture, and heritage. And surprise Great Britain, the rest of the marbles left behind by Elgin hadn't vanished, as the Scottish lord and his supporters had predicted. They were protected and preserved by the Greek people. According to Greek Is in their excellent series of articles, Parthenon Marbles in Depth, as soon as the war was over in 1832, the new nation of Greece began restoration projects and started retrieving looted antiquities. They established an archaeological service devoted to this. Quote, the spiritual revival of the Greek people following four centuries of oppression by Ottoman Turks became closely interconnected with the survival of ancestral relics, especially those from the Golden Age. 
It was an ideological orientation to the classical Greek past. The first appeal for the return of the Parthenon marbles from the British Museum was made in 1842. It was denied, as every appeal has been denied ever since. For October, we have an Ojideh episode coming up and one in honor of Halloween. So our next episode about the Parthenon marbles will be in November. Then we'll finally talk about the less than stellar job the British Museum has done caring for the marbles, artifact theft scandal that broke this year at the British Museum, and the dusty old arguments they continue to offer as an excuse for holding on to the heart of Greece. And we'll talk about the special state-of-the-art Acropolis Museum in Athens, waiting to give them the home they deserve. Give them back, England. A majority of your citizens agrees with the Greeks that you need to give them back. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Darides Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes, us. Yes.